For those of you that may not know me, uh, my name is Zach McGoy. Uh, my wife, family, and I worship here um, at Genesis. And I, I have the honor and pleasure to be able to preach the word of God to you guys this morning. So, Rachel and I, Rachel, my wife, we, um, we kind of made a, a decision to move into healthier rhythms and healthier um, lifestyle uh, at our home. Um, not just spiritual health, but physical health. And so we've, we've changed our diet. We've started working out. One of the uh, workouts that we've done is um, called Insanity. And I don't know how familiar you are with that workout, but the name, they, they titled it correctly, right? And so to give you an idea of it, uh, P90X, uh, which is a few years older, um, most people I feel like are pretty aware of what that workout is. Um, insanity is kind of like a heightened version of that, a crazier version of that, right? Um, it's essentially, um, it's done on the TV, and so you're watching, watching all these people do this workout where uh, this man named Sean T, he's the, he's the coach, he's the leader of it. Um, and as he's, he's coaching these people and he's coaching you through the TV, he's encouraging you in what he's saying, right? And he's amazing at encouragement. Right, like he's going from person to person, and he's he's grabbing them, and he's saying, "Look at this! Look at this guy right here! What were you at when you started? Oh, you're at this now. Look at how much he has improved. Look how great he is!" And he's he's speaking to you through the TV, and he's encouraging you as well. He, he's telling you, "You can do it. I believe in you. I know that you can do this. Hey, you may not be here yet." But you will be. Take a break. Take you a few seconds. Don't feel like you have to do it like these guys that have been doing it are doing it. Take you a break. Stop for a minute. And he'll give you a minute. And he's like, now get back in there. You, you're done resting. Get back in there. And he is on top of it. And you feel encouraged. And Rachel and I, we're dying, right? Like, I definitely can't do what those guys are doing. My legs are jelly. I can't even stand up anymore. I tried to take the stairs because we're doing it upstairs. And I tried to take the stairs and I had to grab the rail. because. And I don't know if I've ever used the rails on the stairs before. But I had to save my life right there, right? Because my legs were jelly and I was collapsing. He does such a good job of feeling like he believes in you. Even though he doesn't know you. I don't know him. We don't hang out, right? This isn't in person. This is through the TV. I've never met him. I'm probably never going to meet him. Um, but he, he, you feel that encouragement from him. He, he has a way about him of making you feel that you can achieve this. And what's really interesting about this, and as, as I, I think about what encouragement looks like, it makes me wonder. He's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in, in the God of the universe. He doesn't believe in Jesus. So that encouragement he's giving, is it the same kind of encouragement that we receive and we are called to give one another? As we, we think about that encouragement, you know, even in that, his encouragement is very limited in what it can accomplish. 
He is encouraging the participants there and us at home. He's encouraging us towards a future goal that may or may not be attainable, right? If we're not doing this workout, we're not going to see those results. There is a very good chance that this, and there's a very good chance, even if I do it exactly as he is encouraging me to do it, I'm not going to look like him. That encouragement, while good, it fails in some very key ways. So this morning, as we, we dig into the Word of God, and as we, we break it apart and we discuss it, I'm going to read verse 11 for us again. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. What does Christian encouragement look like? Is it the same as worldly encouragement? You know, basic literature, basic reading um, of Scripture and understanding of anything is when we see therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is the therefore there? Talking about the end times and, and understanding that, that can be a very difficult thing for us to understand as Christians, right? It's a very, you know, it, it's, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of having a position uh, on what you believe and how you believe the end times will take place. But it can be very overwhelming, right? Are you premillennial? Are you postmillennial? You know, I was born in 1990, so I think I'm just a regular millennial. It can be difficult. It can be overwhelming in our understanding of, of where it is and, and what it takes place. But something that we can all agree on, or should be able to agree on as believers in Christ, is that he is returning. That he is coming back. You know, my wife loves me well. She, she knows that there's times that I need to um, disconnect and I need a break. And generously throughout our marriage, she, she has seen those times and told me, hey, hey Zach, I'm going to take the kids and I'm going to go, I'm going to, go to Crockett. We're, we're from Crockett. We grew up in Crockett. She's like, I'm going to make a day of Crockett. Um, that way you can stay at home. And you can relax and you can have that time to yourself. Well, early on in, in marriage, um, and part of kind of being married and learning each other is learning that there are expectations that we all bring in to a marriage and to a situation. And expectations are not sinful, they're not bad, but they are something to be aware of that you're, and, and to discuss and to talk about. When I hear this, my expectation is, is that entire day is up for me to do whatever I want. I can laze about the house. I cannot move. I, can, I got my chair. I can prop my feet up. I can turn the TV on. I can binge watch this stuff that I've been wanting to binge watch. But that's not the expectation that Rachel has had at times. And her expectation is a whole lot more godly and sanctified than mine is. 
her expectation is, is that I would enjoy my time, but there would also be some level of honey-do listing and cleaning. And I felt that, and I felt the conviction of that when she's challenged me in that. And it was good and right, and so what I, I told myself is, is okay, that's, that's good. Let me do this. Let me honor my wife in this. This is not only honor my wife, but honor Jesus. So what I would do is, is find my friends is a great app, and I would track her. And I would invest my time in that day as I saw fit, and then I would time it. And I'd say, uh-oh, she's on her way back. Let me try and get as much cleaned as I can, and let me try and put this off. And I'm still thinking to myself, let me put this off, and let me honor her in this regard. Let me not be alert. Let me not be diligent. Let me just do the bare minimum to accomplish a goal. But the thing is, I've realized that doing that is not honoring. As we, as we read, I'm missing the heart of what is being asked of me. As we read this, you know, and as we understand that the Lord is coming back, how do we respond to that? How do we live our lives? How do we challenge one another as fellow believers with that information? You know, the thing is, we can't find my friends Jesus, right? We can't just look at our phone and say, all right, he's on his way. He's currently over the Indian Ocean, right? Or, you know, we can't do that. And Paul, as we were reading through Thessalonians, we're seeing that Paul gives us a couple, he lists two responses that people typically have um, to the return of the Lord. The first one is indifference. Verses 4 through 7. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Paul identifies two kinds of people in this world. Those who ignore the reality of Christ's return and those who let the future reality spur them on to the present. In talking about the initial, in talking about those who are indifferent, Paul uses three metaphors. He says they are in darkness. He says they are asleep and they are drunk. Let's talk about darkness first. If we think about what darkness is, darkness is um, the idea, when we're in darkness, we lose our sense of direction, right? We, um, things that were clear to us in the light are now no longer clear. Or my kids, they, they enjoy sleeping with the closet light on to get asleep, right? They also enjoy... Um, reenacting Twister in their bedroom. So at night, so that I don't, you know, because I've, I've turned into my dad, and I don't want the, the light on all that, I, without turning the bedroom light on, I try and go into my room, into their room, get to the closet light, but before I turn that light off and I'm in darkness, I'm trying to visually look and see 
Lego there, Lego there. I don't know what that is, but I definitely don't want to step in that. Jonah's going to be mad if I crush this. Okay, this is where everything is. Boom, lights off, go for it. I don't have the best track record of dodging the things in the floor. What was clear and what I could visually see when the light is on is now obscured. Paul says they are asleep. Those who are in, respond to indifference to the coming of the Lord are asleep. When we are asleep, and some of you guys sleep better than others, right? But when you're asleep, you're helpless and you're vulnerable, right? One of the, the most important rules that you have to learn first when you're having a sleepover is, is you are not the first person to go to sleep. If you are the first person to go to sleep, you're asking for trouble. You're asking for creative ways to be pranked. Because you can't defend yourself. You don't know what's happening. If you're the first one to sleep, you're also the first one to wake up with shaving cream on your face, right? They are drunk. When people are drunk, their perception is distorted. You cannot see things clearly. You believe you're acting one way. But anybody that looks on you sees the reality of how you're acting. This is how Paul says those who respond in indifference see the coming of the Lord. The other response that he encourages, uh, that he speaks of, is when we're seeing that, the other response to the return of Jesus is diligence. Let's look at six, verses 6 through 8. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I felt conviction for how I handled the time Rachel had generously given to me. I felt conviction, not that I wasn't still accomplishing what needed to be accomplished in that time, but I felt conviction because I didn't feel like I was honoring the Lord or my wife with the heart of what I was asked to do. So now when Rachel gives me those times, my first priority is to accomplish what needs to be accomplished, and if there's any time left, I will enjoy that time. When we... Think about the time that Jesus is coming back. The response Paul is getting at for believers is, is that we respond with diligence. Paul lists several characteristics of the person who is living in light of the future return of Christ. They are alert. They are self-controlled. They've put on the breastplate of faith and love. And they've put on the helmet of salvation. I'll say those again. They are alert, right? They're not distracted by 
the things of this world. Their eyes are on the prize and nothing can interrupt that. They are self-controlled. They're not tempted by the pools of this world. They know what is true and they control themselves and how they act. They put on the breastplate of faith and love. Their faith and their hope is in Christ. They look at, they put on the helmet of salvation. They know who they are in Christ and they know that their future is secured. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-10 tells us, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or we are asleep, we might live with him. God has not destined us for wrath. That wrath was laid onto Jesus' body for those that believe in him. God has destined those that believe that and put their faith in Jesus to not be destined for wrath, but salvation. How encouraging is that? That my future, despite my mistakes, despite my failings, is predestined for salvation because of the faith and because of what Jesus has done for me. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Therefore, because all this is true, because the Lord is coming back, our encouragement for one another should be fueled by that. In light of this truth, in light of this teaching that Paul is giving these believers back then, he's encouraging them to encourage one another and build each other up. So what does encouraging one another look like? How is encouraging one another different in a body and in a family of believers than it is amongst people in the world. Might be a shock to you guys. I don't think it is. But it might be. So I'm going to say it. We live in a broken world. Okay, there was no audible gasp, so I think we all know that. Cool. Good. Everything in this world calls us towards selfishness, and despair. Really, an argument could be made that American society encourages people to pursue their dreams with an individualistic spirit. It's hard, it's hard to look at the world and be encouraged. Is that fair? Is that a fair statement? It's hard to watch the news. It's hard to listen to people talk about world events and to leave those conversations in that time encouraged about the future. Sin steals our joy. Our bodies break down. Our plans fail. Our dreams die. 
our resolve that we, we fortified, our resolve eventually weakens. Our perception, it dims. It's very easy to live in this world and feel that no one is for you. It's very easy to live in this world and feel isolated and alone. But that should not be so in a Christian community. That's one of the main reasons the church is so important in the life of a believer. Is that we can be encouraged and we can encourage one another. See, biblical encouragement isn't focused on complimenting someone's haircut, right? Or telling them how good their homemade salsa is. It can be that. But there's something different about the encouragement that we give to one another in a body and the encouragement we receive. See, that encouragement is important, and I'm not downplaying that. If that's something that God has gifted you in, utilize it for the building up of the body. But there's something different that we're called to as encouragement-wise in the body of believers. See, encouragement that we receive here amongst believers is called to lift someone's heart towards the Lord. That's the key goal and desire of encouragement. Christian encouragement is to lift your heart towards the Lord. I was struggling with some stuff on Saturday, on Friday night, and one of my people in my small group texted me. No idea. He had no idea what was going on and let me know that he loved me and that he was praying for me. I thank the Lord for that. That was probably something, he, and, and the, the funny thing about it is, is that may be true all the time. All of you may be thinking, the, thinking of me, well, positively, right? And thanking the Lord for me. But he shared that with me, and it encouraged me, and it caused me to praise to God and say, God, thank you for this church that I'm a part of. Thank you for the people that you've surrounded me with. Yesterday morning, two brothers, two different brothers, took the time to text me, let me know that they were excited for today, and let me know that they were praying for me. I thank the Lord for that. Not only did they think of me in and, and and, and passing, but they reached out to me and let me know that they were thankful for me. And not for me, but for what God was doing through me. That, that encouragement lifted my heart in prayer to the Lord and thankfulness. See, one way that we can encourage others is by bringing about, by bringing before others the real reason for our comfort. 
the real reason for our comfort is present acceptance with God. Growing up with my dad, there was always this sense, me and my dad never, never saw eye to eye. There was always this feeling of, my dad just really didn't like me. Nothing I could do would be good enough for him. And true or not, some of his words reinforced that. I remember still a time that he sat me down and said that he loves me, but we're just so different that he doesn't know what to do with me. That it's a lot easier to love my older brother than it is to love me. And I don't think he was meaning it maliciously, but I don't think he also understood how that affected me and hurt me. There was this idea that I was not accepted by, by, as who I am, as his son. And that can be very discouraging. But praise God that God the Father does not feel that way about us. That we are accepted by him. He doesn't see us by our failings. He sees us based on Christ's righteousness. See, when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sins. He doesn't see our quirks, right? He sees the perfect obedience of his son. We don't have to earn that. Even if we tried to earn that, there's no way we could ever earn that. That is a free gift that is given to us through faith in his son. How encouraging is that? That even if you feel like you have no one else in your corner, even if your relationship with your earthly father wasn't the best, your heavenly father is for you. He accepts you. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. More so than being accepted by him and being encouraged by that, there's also the aspect and the idea of future, future approval. That God loves you so much that he's not going to leave you how you are. That in Christ, he sees you as his son. He sees his son's righteousness imputed to you. But he's going to work and he is committed to changing you into the image and likeness of his son. Sometimes we can, acceptance and approval can run and be, we can use them interchangeably. And in fact, our, our culture um, uses them interchangeably, right? If you do not approve of my actions, you do not accept me. Because in the craziness of our culture and idea is we lump our actions in with our identity. My identity is this because I do this. And if you don't like this, then you do not accept me and you're unaccepting. And that's not the case. Acceptance, and, and I would even argue 
that acceptance is love. Love is acceptance, and we are called to accept people. Even if we don't approve of what they do or their sin. God accepts us through his son, but there's future approval for and the changing of, and the changing into to getting rid of the things that make us incompatible or appear incompatible to his heart, to him. The sin in our lives, he's committed to changing that. He loves you enough to not allow you to be to stay the way that you are. How encouraging is that? How encouraging is that, that we could even remind ourselves of that and remind our brothers and sisters of that, that we are accepted and loved by the Father, that no matter how we sin or no matter the the current struggle that we're going to or no matter this sin that we've tried so hard of our own power to kick and every time we turn around, we keep committing the same sin over and over and over again and we can get wrapped up in the hopelessness of that. How beautiful is it that God is working in us, is working what's best for us to our good, and to change us and to remove that. Guys, we have that encouragement that we can tell other brothers and sisters about that. When we see them struggling in sin, when we see them pulling back and isolating themselves, when we see them feeling that they, are, they can't connect with us because they are judged, We can put our arms around them and tell them you're loved and you're accepted and God is working this out to his glory and He's gonna. there will be a one day, I don't know when it's going to be, that you won't struggle with this anymore. There'll be a point. And that, you know what? God is committed to that. And what God is, he has already started on that process and I see that in you. I see that in you. And what God has started, he will complete. He doesn't get sidetracked. He doesn't get tied up with someone else and forgets about you. He is for you. And he loves you. The fact that we need encouragement, the fact that we need comfort is implies that there's the presence of discomfort in our lives. That that is the worldly default, is for us to feel discomfort. What's amazing here in this, and what's amazing with what Paul is doing here, is he is outlining that the responsibility to encourage one another is what exists in each and every believer. That he is laying that. When Paul, when Paul is writing this, he's not laying this out. Well, it's the leader's responsibility to encourage. They're the only ones that should be encouraging. The leader is responsible. The leaders are responsible for encouraging because they are believers too. But 
one thing I love about this series that we're going through and the one thing I love about the Bible is Jesus and Paul writing here, he does not leave us free of responsibility. I am to own my relationship with you. And you are to own your relationship with me. Ownership is kind of a weighty thing, but it's one of those, it's one of those things that if you've ever had an employee and you, can, you see there's a, there can be a lack of care for the organization or the institution or your business, right? They'll walk by and there's trash on the ground and they'll walk by and not see it. Your kids, same way. There's trash on the ground, they'll walk by right past it. And you may not articulate it this way, but there's a desire for ownership. I wish my kids would own this home. When they see something that needs to be done, I don't have to tell them to do it. They would do it. They would feel responsibility and care. I wish my employee would not just walk past this trash. I wish that they would have pride and care and own their job. We are called to own our relationships with one another. If my brother is hurting and needs encouragement, it's on me to encourage them. It's not on the leadership to encourage them. It's on me to encourage them. There's the idea that I am my brother's keeper. See, this encouragement... Christian encouragement, again, it differs from worldly encouragement. Christian encouragement at its heart desires to lift someone's heart to the Lord. It points out evidence of grace in another person's life and helps them to see that. It points out God's promises in their life. It reminds them of that. When they feel like they're at loss and they're under, there's no control, God is in control. And he loves you and he cares for you. And he wants what's best for you. See, the New Testament reveals to us that encouragement was a regular part of the early church. It was a regular part of their life together. They shared scripture with each other. They shared it as a way to spur them on in their faith. Hope and unity. They were faithful. They shared faithfulness with each other. They encouraged each other towards faithfulness, perseverance, and the certainty that Christ would be coming again. Encouragement was essential in the early church. And I would argue encouragement is essential in the church today. Paul is calling for the members of the church to use this teaching, the truth that Christ is returning, that there's hope in this, to build each other up. The next thing that we see here is the idea of building up one another, building up implies continued growth. The metaphor that Paul uses here is home building. 
I, as I was studying for this and as I was reading commentaries, I, this kind of jumped out to me, and so I'm going to read this to you. Gene L. Green, who in his commentary, he's a um, biblical author and writer, in his commentary on Thessalonians said this way, This call to mutual comfort is tied in with the further explanation to build each other up, a verb that appears for the first time here in the Pauline letters. It derives from the word world of construction, but the apostle uses it metaphorically. It describes the way the apostles and other believers help each other grow and progress in their faith. Each individual in the community is responsible for the development of each other. Each individual in the community is responsible for the development of others and the whole through the mutual building process. This term, therefore, becomes fundamental in Paul's understanding of the life of the church, to build each other up. I, I, have the, I, I enjoy it, but I get to work in construction. I get to see um, just open land step by step become a house that someone's going to be someone's home, and they're going to be able to live in and raise their family in. I enjoy that. But it's not something that's done overnight. It's not something that's just one step to the process and then you're done. It's a multi-step process that takes a while to do it. See, there's no cutting corners in it. And in fact, if you do cut corners, you, you end up in all manner of frustration and issues. Um, in fact, one of my friends who's a construction manager with my company, he sent me a video this last week during all this rain of a competitor's house that they had built. And it was pretty shocking. The rain and the runoff from the rain had flowed through and cut underneath the foundation. And so you guys know, water should never flow towards the foundation. It should always flow away from the foundation. But... The water here had rushed and cut through so much so that the whole side of it was exposed. Not only that, the framing was done on the house and they were starting to hang drywall. So the weight of the drywall was on the slab. The weight of the frame was on the slab. This foundation is compromised. I don't know what they're going to do with it. It's a serious, serious issue. And it's because whoever is building this home didn't do the rough grade. They should have done the rough grade, which is moving the dirt to where it shapes around the home and washes the water when there's rain, washes the water away from the home. I don't know why they didn't do it. I don't know if it was laziness. I don't know if they were just trying to shave days off their build process. I don't know if uh, they just thought maybe, hey, we haven't had rain in so long that that's not something I'm worried about, so I can push this off and continue building this way. But for whatever reason, they skipped this, and they're going to be in serious trouble. Guys, we're responsible not only to encourage one another, but to build each other up. Christians need to engage in the process of building others. 
Christians are called to be construction engineers, not demolition experts. Guys, if, if you feel like you're called to tear one another down, you're missing it. We're called to create and build. We're called to look at our brothers and sisters and not see necessarily where they are, but what they can be and who they can be. To see the giftings that God has laid on them and see how we can encourage them to be better than that, to where they are now. Hebrews 10, 23-25 tells us, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews saw it. He's encouraging the believers not to neglect the meeting together, to look for opportunities to encourage one another to love and good works. And then what I love about Thessalonians, verse 11, the last part of it, Paul is telling the believers, just as you are doing, they are already doing it. But he wants to encourage them and say, this is what I see in you, and I want you to keep it up. Keep up the good work. You know, insanity has been a great workout. It continues to be a great workout. I don't feel like it's a great workout in the middle of it. I feel like I'm going to, every time in the middle of it, I'm like, I'm done. This is it. Even with Shanti encouraging me and pushing me forward, I'm still like, man, Shanti, if you were here, my legs are about to go. But see, Shanti encouraging us during these workouts and encouraging people towards something that's not a certainty is completely different than our encouragement. See, the encouragement that we offer to one another is a matter of fact. It's a matter of truth. God loves us. He loves you. He cares for you. He's for you. He's not against you. He knows what you'll be. He knows who you'll be. He's gifted you for the gifts for this body. The world may be broken and you may hurt right now, but that's not going to be forever. Jesus is coming back. All wrongs, all being misaligned, all frustration that people have towards you. God's going to right those wrongs. Jesus, he's going to wipe every tear from every eye. This is not forever what you live in right now.